this is episode 64 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Michelle Trochet. We are back for part two of her discussion, a little bit more on cough and getting a lot more into expiratory and inspiratory muscle strength training. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It is ASHA week. I'm just trying to get this out and done and out the door so that I can get packed and get out the door myself. So um, I was planning on releasing it later in the week and I was like, no, crap, I got to give people something to listen to on their way. So I'm busting my butt to get this done today. So I can't wait to see everybody in Boston. I'm presenting Saturday morning, I believe. Yes, (laughs) Saturday morning at 1030. So um, I'm so excited for this episode. Again, this is part two of our episode with Dr. Trochet, and we are now on episode 64. That's crazy. A few episodes ago, we reached half a million downloads, and unless you're living under a rock, you've heard me say that so many times because I still just don't believe it. And if I completely, totally had my act together, I would have had this big giveaway as soon as we hit 500,000 downloads, but... um, Truth be told, I'm really not a stats person. (laughs) So I really, it was like we were at like 498. All of a sudden I was like, holy crap, we're like really close. So um, what I have done is I've put together a gigantic giveaway for everyone, basically. And I really just wanted to thank a lot of our past guests and past sponsors because, I mean, you guys, this this is a work, a collaborative work by all of you. Um, I'm just the one sitting here talking in my microphone in my attic, but this thing could not happen without all of your support. So, first and foremost, I want to thank EndoHD, NDOHD, however you say it, however you spell it. Um, this podcast would not survive without them. So, thank you, thank you, thank you times a million for their support. Um, I, they have, they have provided so much support to let me hire the people that I needed to keep this going, to keep my sanity. (laughs) Uh, so I, I really, I'm horrible with words here and I can't explain how grateful I am to them for supporting this podcast and for really, I'm helping to get all this, the words out there, helping to get all the information out there to all of you guys. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you to you. And then also thank you so much to everyone who contributes on Patreon. So that's a crowdfunding website. There's a lot of people, you know, some people give a dollar an episode, some people give 20 bucks a month. It is all so appreciated. And every single dime of that goes back into getting the support and the help that I need to keep this going every single week. So Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart to all of you that helped to support this. So now to our big giveaway. We are doing this giveaway on Instagram because Instagram makes it easy to do giveaways. <laughs> so um, really, that's that's the only reason. So my handle is at Teresa Richard SLP. And so please come check me out on Instagram. It's Teresa, T-H-E-R-E-S-A, Richard. There's no S on my name. R-I-C-H-A-R-D-S-L-P. 
Uh, so come check it out there. We are starting this tomorrow, which is Wednesday. What's tomorrow's date? The 14th, I think? Whatever. Whatever Wednesday before Asha is that we're going to start this. So um, what we're going to be doing is every single day, I am going to be posting one of the prizes. Just follow the directions to be entered, and I think I'll have each giveaway go for about two to three days, and then I'll pull the winner. And so every day from now for, I think I have 12 giveaways, there's going to be 12 giveaways. So it's kind of like the 12 days of Christmas, except it's November and it's not Christmas time yet. So um, yeah, so what I want to do is just take a quick moment to thank every single person that has contributed to that giveaway. So um, first, I want to thank Dr. Eric Blicker. I believe he was episode 13. He came on. He's going to be giving away uh, some of his, uh, one of his recorded CEU courses, I believe, all about reflux, which is wild once you realize how prevalent that is and its impact on dysphagia. So thank you so much, Dr. Blicker, for giving that away. Uh, SA Swallowing Services from Nashville, they are going to be giving away free registration to one of their courses. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much, SAS. You guys are wonderful people. Uh, Megan Sutton, she she is not a dysphagia girl. She's a aphasia girl, but she's incredible and wonderful and brilliant, and she has an awesome dysphagia app. <laughs> um, but she's actually giving away a whole app bundle that's not just specific to dysphagia, so she's throwing in a lot of the other cool stuff too. Uh, Yvette McCoy and Tiffany Wallace, they are giving away a few copies of their new book. Uh, I've talked about that on the previous episode with Yvette, Nicole, Yvette McCoy. It's a new book she's got coming out through Plural Publishing. I also want to thank Dr. Giselle Carnaby and Dr. Michael Crary. They are giving away free registration to MDTP, the McNeil Dysphagia Therapy Program. I want to thank Carmen Bartow. She is with Vanderbilt, and they are giving away free registration to their upcoming medical SLP conference. It looks so awesome. I think that's in February. Uh, that looks great. Um, I want to thank Selena Reese. She is with Carolina Speech Pathology. They are giving away... Uh, CEU courses as well, uh, basically like a gift card to take some of their online courses. Uh, thank you to Dr. Jamie Fisher. She will be giving away registration to her Ventrate course, which I hear is awesome and I need to go take that really soon. Um, I also want to thank Dr. Jamie Fisher and Yvette McCoy. They are giving away registration to their new medical SLP clinical symposium that's going to be in March in Baltimore. Really exciting stuff. I love, 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 love hearing about all these new events that are going on. Um, thank you very much to Rick and Russ. <laughs> they are the men of AMP Care as well as their uh, third, the, the better, the better portion, <laughs> Rhonda. They are with AMP Care. They are giving away one of their courses. And then Walt Fritz, uh, he is our manual therapy PT friend. He's giving away one of his courses, registration to one of his courses as well. And then we also have a gift card to Northern Speech Services. I think I got through everybody. If I missed anybody, I'll owe you like a gigantic shout out. But that's all that I just scratched down and I remembered I wanted to thank everybody on here. So I'm going to be giving all of these away starting tomorrow. We'll do one each day on Instagram at Teresa Richard SLP. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you truly from the bottom of my heart to everybody that's been a guest on this podcast. Everybody that's donated their time and energy and efforts to make this thing go around and Hope we get to do something even twice as cool when we hit a million downloads. So hope you guys enjoy this episode and I will see you in Boston. So where to next? Treatment, I guess. Yeah. Like I, we were talking about before, cough, you know, and it's assessment. We can use 
these different measures to maybe screen for um, aspiration risk, potentially enhance, not potentially, I think you can (laughs) improve your evaluation, kind of the strength of your evaluation by using these values and these measures. But I think the exciting thing is that we know that you can rehabilitate cough as well. And there's some strong support for that. As kind of rehabilitation specialists, there are different ways that we can break into the system, right? And so that can be through targeting kind of the sensory experience, targeting maybe the strength of the muscles or the components involved, or kind of helping with this top-down control of the behavior. And there's some literature to support kind of different approaches with cough. We can probably start with strengthening the muscles. So I think an area that a recent kind of hot topic in speech pathology has been the use of respiratory training. It expiratory or inspiratory, although most of the work has been done looking at expiratory muscle strength training. And there have now been a lot of studies that use different types of uh, respiratory training to target swallowing and cough function. Most of that work uses at least. Uh, there's a long history of respiratory training. Again, this isn't, you know, something that, you know, like we just invented this like brand new thing. You know, physical therapists, other professionals, respiratory therapists have been using respiratory training. It was more recently that we have started to kind of look at it for swallowing and cough. A lot of the work that you'll see in the literature looking at swallowing cough outcomes have been done with a specific device, the EMST-150. That device was developed at the University of Florida by my uh, PhD mentor, Chris Sapienza, who is a PhD in speech pathology, and uh, two of her colleagues, Paul Davenport, who's a respiratory physiologist, uh, physiologist, and Danny Martin, a physical therapist. And so the three of them developed this EMST-150 device, which is the one that you'll see most commonly used in the studies that have looked at swallowing and cough outcomes. And so just a really brief review <laughs> Some of the early work was done in healthy controls, and they found that if you use the EMST device, you can strengthen your expiratory muscles. This was then extended into work in patients, for example, with multiple sclerosis, where Tony Chiara, who was a PhD in physical therapy, identified that they could have improvements in cough effectiveness using expiratory muscle strength training. J.O. Kim, who is a PhD in speech pathology, she then looked in sedentary elderly people. She found that sedentary elderly folks, if they do EMST training, their cough can improve. We then looked in Parkinson's disease. And this is when we started to look at swallowing outcomes. So we looked at both cough and swallowing. We did a randomized clinical trial. Some patients got the real EMST device. Some people got a sham device. And the folks that got the real device had improvements in their swallowing safety, had improvements in in different measures of swallowing physiology, and had improvements in cough effectiveness. That was people with Parkinson's disease. Emily Plowman has found kind of maintenance of swallowing outcomes with EMST and not as clear outcomes yet for cough um, in ALS. Karen Wheeler-Hegland in stroke, um, improvements to cough. Interestingly, in that study, improvements in the urge to cough with uh, EMST in folks with stroke. 
And recently Kate Hutchison, again, in head and neck cancer. Surprise, surprise. That was, I mean, I yeah. was surprised. Yeah, yeah. Legit surprised. <laughs> Which is exciting. Also yeah. improvements in cough and swelling safety with EMST. With kind of other groups have looked at using inspiratory training for vent weaning. Great outcomes there. There, uh, Alvaro Reyes has done work in Huntington's disease using inspiratory and expiratory training at kind of lower strengths, but improvements there in area protective outcomes as well. So, what I think is a robust, compelling <laughs> amount of literature suggesting that respiratory training can be used to improve both swallowing and cough outcomes in neuro, I mean, kind of a lot of different neurologic conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also even head and neck cancer. And so it's not a panacea. It doesn't fix everything for everyone, but it seems to be a a target that needs to be considered or an approach that should be considered for improving cough and potentially also swallowing as, uh, as well. So that's kind of the overview of EMST there, usually the training is completed. Well, here's the thing. You, you can do it a lot of different ways. A, a lot of what hasn't been done yet in the area of EMST is the research on dosage, right? Which is what we don't know essentially about every treatment that we use. We, we, don't, we haven't done the work on dosage yet. Right. But most of these studies have looked at training five days a week doing 25 repetitions a day. So five sets of five repetitions, usually at around 75% of someone's maximum ability for expiratory training. Some studies have had to use different populations. They can't produce that high of a load. And so, for example, ALS, Emily Plowman has used a lower load. So, I mean, it's something that can be individualized to different patients. But that's again, kind of the the brief tutorial, (laughs) more than anything, kind of just a a review through the literature that exists to support the idea that cough can be rehabilitated if you strengthen the expiratory muscles, which certainly makes sense. And you might then also have an improvement to swallowing safety at the same time. This is wonderful. This is so great. Um, let me ask you, because I know some people say that they want to do EMST with their patients, but their patients aren't even strong enough to blow into mm-hmm. the EMST yeah, 150 device. That is certainly a, a challenge. It's There are a lot of challenges. It's a voluntary task. And most a, a lot of our patients have problems with voluntary movement. So they might have trouble kind of coordinating the task itself. You have to take a deep breath in. You have to be able to place the device in your mouth. You have to blow forcefully. So that can cause trouble. Plus, um, it it has kind of like a little small mouthpiece and it can be difficult for some patients if they have oral facial weakness to develop a good seal around the mouthpiece. Uh, So that can be a challenge as well. So I guess you have to troubleshoot a little bit and think, why is my patient having trouble doing the training? And then based on the why, you can then troubleshoot around that. So if the issue is more just the lip seal, you can try a larger mouthpiece. You can try, they're actually like duckbill mouthpieces that you can put on them. 
Yes. One, there was one guy that I had the, the SLP order that for. And so he called it, I went in to do a repeat fees and he said, Oh, I've been doing my duck call every day. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so you can use that sort of a different shape mouthpiece. You could even try a face mask. That would be harder. But there are some ways around that. If the trouble is more so that they're having trouble coordinating the task, then something that I've done in my patients is use kind of a lower load device. So there are some resistive devices that you can do expiratory training with that go much lower in terms of the strength of, of the expiration that the patient has to use. And so you can essentially practice blowing. You're essentially practicing doing the task first, and then you upgrade them to using the EMST device with a higher load. That would, those would be my suggestions. That's what's worked for me. But another problem might be that they can't produce the requisite strength that's the lowest setting on the EMST device, which I think now might be, it was 15, but I think it might be 30 centimeters of water now. So if they can't produce that, then you have to use a device that goes lower. And there are some that do, it's just not the EMST 150 okay. device. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I know some people were asking if, I think, was it like the breather that's lower than that? Yeah. There, there are different ones. And again, I would just suggest that when you're determining, you know, why can't this patient do it? Is it that they're having trouble coordinating the task? Is it more of a, a lip seal leak uh, situation? Or is it that they're just not, they, they're just too, too weak to actually develop the, yeah. the minimum pressure? And then from there, you can kind of make the right decision about what the next, if a different device should be used, you know, if you have to abort ship all, ship all together and try something different. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's, that would be my advice. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then that's if you want to strengthen the muscles themselves, if you want to go at the periphery. We've been more interested recently, more particularly interested in more, just too interested in everything. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, can we kind of exploit this idea of the reduced urge to cough and then potentially use some sort of biofeedback approach to enhance cough? You know, we know that Again, a lot of our patients have trouble with the motor organization of the behaviors of swallowing and cough. And biofeedback is something that we know is really important for motor learning. There are a lot of different approaches that we use for swallowing that include biofeedback. I think one really great novel one is Biscuit coming out of Maggie Lee Huckabee's lab for swallowing. But can we do this for cough as well? And so what we do is we... And this is kind of more of something that we're developing in the lab right now. And hopefully, eventually, it'll get to the point where we can translate it to the clinic. But we use software where the patient can essentially visualize their cough uh, airflow. And then we select a target that's 25% higher in terms of that peak flow value than they normally would. And then we have them with a face mask, they're looking at their cough, and we present them with a, a low level of capsaicin, not a level that would make them cough, but a level where they, they sense the stimulus is there. And then we have them target kind of this higher peak flow using the biofeedback. And then we give them some guidance about what they should be doing to achieve those higher peak flows. Uh, we thought it was important. There are several components we thought were important. We wanted the biofeedback portion for sure. And we wanted it not to just be voluntary cough training because the idea is that this will translate to them 
actually feeling like the stimulus that they're sensing is salient and that then they can kind of get the link between the sensory and the motor, right? So it's producing a stronger cough in the context of this, the stimulus, because again, it's a sensory motor behavior. We want to kind of help the relationship between the two. Their home practice is they use the peak flow meter. So they go home, we give them a target peak flow and we say cough into this device, try to get to that peak flow. Um, We actually have a clinical trial ongoing right now, which was funded by the Michael J. Fox Foundation, where we're in Parkinson's disease comparing expiratory muscle strength training to this biofeedback approach. And we're looking at both swallowing and cough outcomes before and after. Um, so there's another year or so left in that study. And then awesome. maybe I can come back and tell you what please we found. Please do, please but, do. you know, in some folks, uh, you know, we haven't analyzed all of the data yet, but there um, are some promising results there. And again, I think even though this isn't necessarily ready for prime time and who knows if it ever will be, but I think even just using the handheld peak flow meter as a biofeedback approach for your patients, biofeedback-ish approach (laughs) for your patients at home is something you could do now. So you could tell them, you know, look at this value, it's one, and I want you targeting 1.5, you know, essentially something like that, 100, 150. You can, you can mark it on the device. It's, it's really easy to use. It's incredibly low tech. So that's something that it, it could potentially be used even now in clinics. Awesome. Something else kind of on this same biofeedback vein um, that we're studying right now is endoscopic biofeedback. You know, we use endoscopic biofeedback for swallowing often, right? You know, look how, you know, maybe you're training the superglottic or, or effortful swallows or something and you're showing the patient the, the, the video while they're doing it and you're training swallowing compensations. And we're trying that now with cough. So with the uh, endoscope in place, we first have them kind of target vocal fold closure, short valsalva, then Salva with an expiratory effort. And in some of our folks, they respond very well to that. It's not going to probably help the sensory side, but in terms of the motor response, um, it seems to be helpful. And we know that, again, both sides are important. We want them to respond to the stimulus, but we want that when they respond to the stimulus, it's actually an effective cough. Who cares if they cough to the stimulus, but it's, you know, that's not going to help. So... We have a, a small pilot also right now looking at kind of the immediate pre-post improvement or not using cough biofeedback. But kind of anecdotally, uh, clinically, we do see that it works for some folks. So if for those of you out there that do fees, that might be something that you try. If you see that your patient just doesn't seem to be clearing material well from the airway while the scope is in place, you could start to try to probe kind of vocal closure with the expiratory effort and the cough and see if, if they're even stimulable for improving kind of the organization of cough. Yeah, so those are the main things that are in our toolbox right now for cough. Hopefully we'll keep filling up the toolbox yeah, yeah. <laughs> over time, but there are things. It's not empty. Yes. I feel <laughs> so, like we just opened Pandora's box today okay. with this conversation because okay. I feel like so many people are going to be like, oh my God, I had no idea about this. So <laughs> thank you so, so much for sharing all of this. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to, um, 
I, I asked Dr. Troche to send me kind of just some ideas of what we were going to talk about. And she sent me this um, old presentation that she did. But the first slide, as soon as I opened it, just screamed to me. And I think, you know, so many times we get so far down the rabbit hole of looking at all these little itty bitty things that aren't in the grand scheme of things aren't itty bitty, but sometimes it's nice to step back and look at the big picture. Mm -hmm. And if you could just talk about this first slide here of the significance of, you know, Parkinson's disease and its correlation with aspiration pneumonia and things like that. And, you know, that's essentially what our doctors, what our administrators want to know is why are you treating this? What's it going to do? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you all know well that a lot of people have dysphagia. (laughs) Something like one in 25 adults annually develop dysphagia. And as we well know, if you have dysphagia, you're at increased risk for aspiration and aspiration increases risk for aspiration pneumonia. Something else that we know is that aspiration pneumonia is a leading cause of death in most neurodegenerative disease, not just Parkinson's disease. And, you know, that's always something that if physicians know that, but I don't always think that they know that there are things that we can be doing to improve their swallowing and their cough to hopefully mitigate these risks and overall mitigate the impact of aspiration pneumonia. What we also know is that if you have dysphagia, you're 1.7 times more likely to die in the hospital really impactful data that we should be armed yeah, with. absolutely. And again, I think that this whole, you know, we know that aspiration pneumonia is not something you only develop if you have dysphagia, right? There are a lot of other factors that are involved in the development of aspiration pneumonia. I would challenge us to think that it's not just the dysphagia part, but the dystocia part that's also important, right? So it's whether they've aspirated, but whether they can clear the airway, plus all of those other factors, whether ambulatory, oral hygiene, you know, so many things. But I mean, hopefully after today, you feel like there's compelling evidence to suggest that there's a lot we can do. And we're armed with this information about the impact of dysphagia and dysthesia, aspiration pneumonia in our patients, but also armed with the data that there are clear ways that we can be evaluating these problems and treating these problems for better outcomes. Why? Because the quality of life of our patients is very much impacted by this. You start to take it for granted that, you know, you were so hyper focused on in the clinic, like, you know, improving the PAS score, you know, whatever it is that we're measuring in the clinic. We're not always paying as close attention to these patients' quality of life and what that means to their overall health status. You know, everything, I mean, basically everything that we do that's fun and we enjoy (laughs) involves eating or drinking something. Yeah, totally. And particularly when you're an older adult and you're retired and you want to be hanging out with your friends and, you know, getting coffee and having wine hour or whatever it is. If all of a sudden you start to have trouble with these, it is incredibly socially isolating. And that can, you know, that depression, the anxiety that's sometimes accompanied by that, is related then to kind of worsening their overall health state and it can then even worsen these outcomes more and more. So it's something I have to be keeping very close tabs on. And something too that we need to think about and educate our kind of medical colleagues about is the cost on our medical system. There's some really 
great recent work that's come out of University of Wisconsin, Madison, where they looked at inpatient costs and they were around $6,243 higher among those with dysphagia diagnoses. And I think, I guess the, the average cost was like 19000 something for a hospital. Insane. Or something. Yeah. I'm, I mean, it's, it's, expensive. And, and, you know, and again, another part we don't think about is the expense for our patients, the expense of, you know, the different types of modified foods and, and, you know, gizmos and gadgets that we ask them to use to, to swallow more effectively. And that's impactful too. And so, you know, I would challenge all of us to really try to think about how can we get in there earlier and start to address these problems earlier and start to address these problems in a systematic, evidence-based way so that our patients don't get to the point where they're having to be socially isolated and inpatient, you know, and be inpatients and develop the aspiration pneumonia. And some of the ways that we do that, I think, is definitely by improving our screening so that we find these patients earlier. We know that with patients with neurologic disease, 30 to 40% of them silently aspirate. Most of them have very bad insight into their conditions. So they're not, when they're, it's not that their physician isn't asking, you know, do you think you're having swallowing problems? Their physician is often asking, but they're saying no, because they really think they don't. And so, you know, we need to start as a field to think about how do we help our physician colleagues to, to better identify these patients. And so maybe those are with screening methods, reflex cough testing, who knows, peak flow meters. So that they, even when their patient is saying, no, I don't think I'm having problems, they're still referring to us because they know it's inevitable that they're going yeah. to have the problem. Yeah. And then, but then we have to do our part, which is to, Absolutely, to yes. treat yes. them, evaluate them the right ways so that we get the the very best outcomes for our patients. And if you or your facility are interested in purchasing a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fee studies, please check out our wonderful sponsor, EndoHD. That's ndohd.com forward slash contact. Uh, They provide a cased portable system as well as a carded system depending on your needs. And they also provide representatives that can help clinicians set up their fees programs. Uh, They combine cutting-edge technology with clinician-inspired devices and phenomenal customer service to make the best imaging devices in the country. Go to www.ndohd.com forward slash contact to discuss your specific fee systems requirements, pricing, or to request a live product demonstration. You know, when it comes to Parkinson's disease, very early on when I was still at the University of Florida, I, I told the neurologist, I was like, you could send us every single patient with Parkinson's disease when you first diagnose them. And I guarantee that we will find something. And they started to send us all of their patients. And you find that, I mean, we, the, the data is there. These patients, essentially a hundred percent of them will develop dysphagia. Why wouldn't we get in there early and help them when they have not too much of a difficulty yet compared to when, you know, it almost feels like a lost cause. Right. Yeah. So this makes me think of a there was a post on Facebook yesterday in one of the groups and somebody had said, is there anything we can do for this, for this neurodegenerative population? I'm thinking specifically Parkinson's. I've been told that it's a lost cause and there's nothing we can do. And a bunch of people chimed in like, yeah, no, there's nothing we can do. But it got me, uh, you know, it it got me thinking right away. And exactly what you said is, are, are these people just used to getting people 
at the end of the road? You know, are we not armed with this knowledge to begin with? Or like you said, we need to get these people way ahead of time to help them. Yeah. Well, and and I really do think that we can help these people at all the yeah. points yeah. In, in the disease process. I mean, I think very early on, there's a lot to be done in terms of education, in terms of giving them ideas of how to help prevent some of these problems. But then, you know, then there's kind of this window for where rehabilitation tends to be very effective. But even when it seems like hope is lost, I mean, we have seen patients with pegs that haven't been swallowing. And if, if your evaluations are very specific and targeted and you have you know, strong outcome measures, you can identify some places to, to uh, produce change, even in your most severe patients. And, you know, to anyone who thinks that patients with neurologic conditions can't improve, I mean, I think you just have to delve into all the literature, even just on EMST, ALS, MS, Huntington's, yeah. Parkinson's. Yeah. I mean, these are diseases where years ago we would think, oh, you know, there's no hope. We know so much better. Yeah. I instantly thought of you. I thought of Dr. Plum and I'm like, how, oh, all these people are doing this great work. Like, are you people out of your mind that you're not realizing this? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, but it's tough. I mean, I, that even not that long ago, I mean, when I was doing my master's degree, which is not long ago, because yeah. I'm not old. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was kind of this idea like, oh, if, you know, if your central nervous system is involved and, you know, probably not going to like fix anything, but that's just, we know so much better now. And, you know, we even, there's a, a case that Ahmad Salim, who was a, a PhD student in the lab when I was, I think I was like an undergrad and a master's student in Chris Appian's lab. And he studied someone, it was a woman with Parkinson's disease who was in our EMST trial. And she essentially just didn't want to give back her EMST device after five weeks. And we said, yeah, you can keep doing it, but you have to come in weekly and we're going to keep measuring your MEPS. We followed her for 20 weeks. This is a woman with Parkinson's disease, moderate disease severity. She went from like MEPS of like 70 centimeters of water to like 190 centimeters of water over 20 weeks. So if you think that someone with a degenerative disease can't improve, can't train, I mean, you just got to look at the data. Yes. So, so many, so many reports in physical therapy, literature, occupational therapy, speech pathology, that we can make a significant impact in these populations. And I think something, you know, that, that sometimes the reason why we feel that way is because, yes, we're probably not going to make them perfect, but that can't be the only thing that we consider a positive outcome, right? Like I, if you're working in neurologic disease, you just can't, that can't be your expectation. Sometimes simply reducing the progression of the inevitable, I think, is a very positive outcome. And so, you know, we have to also consider what, what we're calling success. Yeah. And, you know, for example, in, in uh, Emily Plowman's ALS study, it wasn't necessarily that the folks that got EMST got way better, but compared to the other sham group, they didn't worsen. And so, that seems like yeah. great yeah. for ALS, yeah. right? And from there we can build and maybe eventually we do have something that makes them you know, even better. But certainly we can slow the progression of these changes. We can, in you know, with intensive training, there's 
plenty of data to suggest that we can get an immediate improvement. So yeah, I love this. Oh, always go for it. Yes. Always go for yes. it. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love this so much. We cover all of it. I think all of it plus some. <laughs> this is so wonderful, Dr. Troche. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.